Luke chapter 10, beginning with verse, sorry, 25. I hope I said 25 earlier, 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. In World War I, over 8 million military personnel died in combat. 20 million were wounded And untold millions of civilians perished as well. To say nothing of malnutrition, other forms of suffering, even crimes against humanity that killed and wounded so many. Now those in the trenches were miserable. Many of them only fought reluctantly. So you can imagine the hatred that can start to grow in your heart when your friend is gunned down in no man's land. and You can't even go to retrieve his body because if you try, enemy machine guns will cut you down too. Yet leading up to Christmas Day, 1914, a remarkable thing happened at many places across the western front of this war. The guns fell silent. Now, at first, a few brave people on both sides ventured into no man's land and shouted greetings to their adversaries. In time, more, of them, more people joined them. Dead soldiers were retrieved from no man's land. Gifts were exchanged. On Christmas Day, Henry Williamson, an English soldier, wrote to his mother, I'm riding from the trenches. In my mouth is a pipe presented by the Princess Mary. In the pipe is tobacco. Well, of course, you say. But wait, in the pipe is German tobacco. (laughs) You say from a prisoner or found in a captured trench. Oh, dear, no, from a German soldier. Yes, a live German soldier from his own trench. 
There are famous pictures and drawings of, of people from warring sides in this conflict, even putting together a game of soccer in between the trenches on Christmas Day, 1914. And so even in one of the most miserable conflicts in human history, peace and neighborliness could break out. And this fact takes a certain poignance from the fact that it happened around Christmas, the time when we celebrate Jesus' arrival on earth, God's own big push in the war to subdue his enemy and make peace with his people. And what we find in the parable of the Good Samaritan is that Jesus makes exactly this kind of neighborliness towards enemies a key tenet of his own kingdom. Now when the lawyer asks Jesus, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus returns with his own question. What is written in the law? And the lawyer gives the approved according to Hoyle response. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Well, Jesus commends his scripture memory and says, do this and you will live. But the lawyer still has a problem because he has no problem seeking to honor God. He has no problem seeking to the good of his neighbor. And yet he asks Jesus this follow-up question. Who's my neighbor? Asking for a boundary line for neighborliness. Asking where he can know where his neighbors stop and his enemies begin. Very often we want the same thing. We're hoping for a boundary line that leaves people just like us as our neighbors and lets us go on with hatred in our heart for the people we don't like very much. It's not hard to find a brother or sister who takes every opportunity to express their hatred for political opponents, the gays, the feminists, oil tycoons, Wall Street, the media, whoever it is. Maybe, as I say this, you realize I'm describing you. Maybe you don't take every opportunity. Maybe you don't have such an extreme hatred. But we know, each one of us in our own hearts, that we harbor some antipathy for people with whom we differ. Now, Jesus could have answered the question, who is my neighbor, with, well, everybody is your neighbor. But instead, he brings neighborliness to life through a parable. From that parable, I want to make three key observations. First, in verses 29 through 32, in the gospel, in the kingdom of God, your natural neighbors may be spiritual strangers. Verses 33 through 35, your natural enemies may be spiritual neighbors. In 36 to 37, God calls his kingdom subjects to be a neighbor to strangers and enemies. And so first, we see in the example of the priest and the Levite from verses 29 through 32 that in the kingdom of God, you may find that your natural neighbors are not your spiritual neighbors, but rather strangers. For Jesus presents us with a man who's attacked on his way to Jerusalem, to Jer- from Jerusalem to Jer- Jericho. 
And to set the scene, it's difficult terrain. It's a really steep drop from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's a descent of about 200 feet per mile for 18 miles. And what's more, it's, it's really rugged, craggy terrain. It affords a lot of hiding places for robbers. And this man falls among them. He's, all his goods that he has on him are taken away. Even the clothes off his back. He's beaten to a pulp and left near dead. Ah, but there's some hope. For this is the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. In, Jer- in Jerusalem, that's the city where the priests performed their service at the temple. And Jericho is a city where many priests live. And so, as this man lies bloody, beaten, penniless, and naked, somebody who knows God's law will surely come by. And the law prescribes love for both neighbor in Leviticus 19.18 and also for stranger in 19.34. In fact, the rabbis taught that love for the stranger was nearly as important as the commandments to love God and neighbor. If the love for God and neighbor was a summary of the whole law, boy, the stranger takes a very close a thir- third place there. And even if the man dies at least his body will be properly buried. Because in this situation, at that time uh, in, in Jewish thought, ceremonial uncleanness wasn't even a factor. For the, the Jews taught that burial was so important that a priest was even permitted to incur uncleanness in order to care for an abandoned body. And so whether this man lives as we hope, or dies, he's in good hands. And yet when just such an opportunity occurs, the priest passes it up. And the Levite passes it up. They both see the man, and they both walk on by. These two people, central figures in the ritual of temple worship, with all knowledge of of what the law of God requires. They stand for all that is good and glorious about our God. And yet in passing by, they're ignoring the love for neighbor that is at the heart of proper worship of God. Now Jesus' parables almost universally have a fantastical or shocking element to them. Well, that's no surprise. They illustrate what the kingdom of heaven is like. And Jesus uses everyday situations with a surprising twist. And it's in this plot twist that the kingdom of heaven is illustrated. Now, it's shocking. You almost can't believe that a priest and a Levite would pass up an opportunity to care for such a man. And so here we start our search for this lesson. For Jesus is telling this parable to a lawyer. He would have found an awful lot in common with a priest and a Levite. They came from the same nation. They shared the same worship practices at the temple. They taught the same law. The lawyer would hear about a priest and a Levite and think about them as he would think about himself. Upstanding citizens, good men who would never do such a wicked thing as to leave a man half dead lying in the street. And yet, in Jesus' parable, here they are. 
And it's in this twist that you can pick up the first lesson of the parable that those whom you naturally see as your neighbors may well turn out to be strangers to the kingdom of heaven. For how often do we see somebody who shares some of our moral values, some of our political values, some of our social values, our taste in books, music, and movies, and we think, that's someone who I want to be shoulder to shoulder with. These people are my people. Even, in some cases, people who put on a public show of being part of Christian culture, and yet their lives show that they have no true love for God or neighbor or for stranger. And that's what we see being enacted in this parable by the priest and Levite. For they would have taught people countless times to love the Lord and to love their neighbor. And they would have had a public image of living up to those commands. And yet in reality, Jesus is saying that public image is just a crumbling facade in private. They did not live up to the law. And these hypothetical figures had no part of the kingdom of God. And so we see that in the gospel, your neighbors by nature may turn out to be strangers in his kingdom. But now we turn to the example of the Samaritan and find this other shocking lesson, that your natural enemy may prove to be your spiritual neighbor. And so what happens when the Samaritan arrives on the scene? The same the same vision appears before him as the priest and the Levite. He sees the injured man. But where the priest and the Levite see, and as far as we know, feel nothing. The Samaritan sees and feels compassion. As you may know, we've covered it in, uh, in last fall's study on gentle and lowly. The Greek word here is related to this Greek word for the bowels or your guts. The place where you're said to feel love or compassion. And so the Samaritan sees the half-dead man and he feels it in his guts. And he goes over and above in service to him. He gets out his first aid kit. He dresses the wounds. He puts on Neosporin and Band-Aids. He patches him up. Because this man is weak and dying, the Samaritan gives up his animal. Remember we said what a steep and difficult walk it was from Jericho to Jerusalem? He gives up his animal so that the half-dead man can ride. When they get to the inn, he makes sure that he'll be cared for. And two denarii would pay for about two weeks of lodging and medical treatment for this half-dead man. And the Samaritan doesn't even ask, doesn't even stick around to be recognized. He doesn't ask for credit, thanks, or repayment. He promises uh, to pay anything extra that needs to be paid for. He just makes sure that the man will recover from his injuries. So look at this contrast. The priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan all saw the man. But the priest and Levite, the peers and brothers of the lawyer, did not do the duty of a a neighbor to this man. It's the enemy, the Samaritan, who does the duty of a neighbor. This, again, it's a shocking twist, and it's true here, too. Now, we live in a peaceful time in a peaceful part of the world. You know, we hear priest, we hear Levite, we hear Samaritan, and it's like, well, these are just words, right? But suppose I shared with you the story of a man who got mugged. 
He hands over his wallet, his phone, and his car keys. And then the criminal shoots him anyway and leaves him dying on the sidewalk. And a pastor and a deacon of the church both see him and just walk on by. And then a terrorist or a drug dealer or a gang member sees him. And this enemy of yours saves his life. Let me demonstrate the validity of that analogy. I just want to tell you one story of the relationship between Jews and Samaritans at that time. For in the year 50, a number of Jews from Galilee were traveling through Samaritan territory on their way to Jerusalem for one of the feasts. I forget which one. As they passed through the town of Guinea, some Samaritans killed some of these Galileans, unprovoked. Well, in response, the Jews then raided a number of Samaritan villages. And so the governor of Syria had both the Samaritans and the Jews who were involved crucified. Eventually, this dispute went all the way to the emperor, who decided in favor of the Jews in question. And he had the Samaritan delegation themselves crucified. Now, to the Jews, Samaritans were nothing but colonizers, mongrels, illegitimate children who had intermarried with the Assyrians, who obeyed the Torah and uh, ignored the prophets and the writings. And even worse, they insisted that God was supposed to be worshipped on Mount Gerizim and not in Jerusalem. On dry turf, the Jews' hatred for Roman occupiers might just beat their hatred for Samaritans, but only by a nose. So when Jesus speaks of a Samaritan as virtuous and neighborly, it's not only a surprise, it's an insult. Now when asked, who is my neighbor, Jesus could have simply replied, everybody. But he's a better teacher than that, for he knows that a response like everybody is too abstract. He knows how we, in our hearts, mold abstractions to fit our existing assumptions, comfort level, and biases. If Jesus says everybody to the lawyer, what will he say? Well said, teacher. And then go on his merry way and hate every Samaritan that he passes by as he goes. But Jesus instead tells this parable. He crafts it to shine a spotlight on our blind spots. For it isn't enough to think everybody is my neighbor. Jesus calls you to look at every enemy, every stranger, every person that you have any antipathy for and look at them and love them as your neighbor. Everybody is not my neighbor. That Samaritan is my neighbor. That person who disagrees with me on politics, on society, on movies, on everything. That person is my neighbor. Jesus brings us face to face with our fierce desire to hate outsiders. And in the kingdom that he has inaugurated, he is transforming us. Everybody that we may be tempted to hate, left or right, rich or poor, black or white, Jew, Samaritan, Gentile, everyone is to be seen by us as a neighbor. So we ask, who is a neighbor? 
Well, we learn by the negative example of the priest and Levite that the people we think of as neighbors might be strangers. We learn by the positive example of the Samaritan that even our enemies in God's kingdom can become our neighbors. But this doesn't go far enough, for we find in these last few verses that if we embrace the covenant that Jesus inaugurates to establish his kingdom, we ourselves will be turned into neighbors, to strangers and enemies. For Jesus turns the question around on the lawyer. The lawyer desiring to justify to himself says to Jesus, who's my neighbor? Well, Jesus tells the parable and asks the lawyer, who proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer, at least he's a good listener, he replies, the one who shows him mercy. Jesus tells him, you go and do likewise. Well, Jesus is here inviting the lawyer to imitate the Samaritan in neighborliness. He's saying that this hated, evil, wicked, mongrel Samaritan is an example for the upstanding, righteous, law-abiding lawyer. And by implication, Jesus is identifying himself with the Samaritan of this parable. For think about this, like the Samaritan, Jesus was instituting a new system of worship that was not accepted by the Jews. In John 4, he tells the Samaritan woman that in his kingdom we will worship neither on Mount Gerizim nor at Jerusalem, but wherever we are in spirit and in truth. In Hebrews 10, we learn that by his single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, putting an end to the system of sacrifices. Much like the Samaritan, Jesus was instituting a form of worship very far from what the lawyer was comfortable with. But Jesus doesn't only identify himself with the Samaritan. Look at the way Jesus phrases the question. The lawyer asked who his neighbor is. And Jesus asks him, well, who's a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Now, the lawyer has things figured out with God. He's good. But Jesus is inviting the lawyer to identify himself with the dying man. A person in a desperate position, with no hope for himself, unless someone comes to rescue him. That rescue even comes in the form of an enemy, someone who threatens to upend everything the lawyer has lived for. Now, if you look at Jesus with your natural sight, you can only see him as an enemy because Jesus calls everyone who follows him to die with him, to renounce everything that the world has to offer you and to follow him instead. But like the enemy Samaritan did for the half-dead man, Jesus brings us back from death by giving us of himself. The man in the parable was beaten up and he would have died without help. As for you and me, without help from Christ, you and I are also dead in our sins. We could not possibly inherit eternal life. And yet Christ in his mercy has made us alive. Now Jesus goes far beyond the Samaritan for the Samaritan treated a likely 
possible enemy as his neighbor to save his life. He gives generously out of his means. But Jesus did the same for us who, are, who were surely his enemies. As Paul writes in Romans 5.10, that while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. And Jesus didn't give out of material provision, but he gave his very life so that he could save yours. And it's only when you and I, enemies of God, are made into his family by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that we ourselves can heed his words to the lawyer in verse 37. Go and do likewise. And as we go and do likewise, we will imitate Jesus in extending peace and care to enemies and strangers, hoping only to bless them. And if God wills, to welcome them into the kingdom as neighbors and as brothers and sisters. So we will treat everybody, no matter how much we might want to to hate them as our neighbor, the coworker who cusses all the time and tells dirty jokes, the college professor who teaches that the Bible is historically unreliable, the drug dealer around the corner, the college kids who spend all night Thursday drinking and partying on Greek Row. We don't make everybody our neighbor. In Christ, the person in front of us is made our neighbor. And so in 2 Corinthians 1.4, we read that God comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. Every blessing that we have is meant to be shared. And so our neighbors are not just the people that we like. Our neighbors are the people in our lives who are there that we can care for. And so who our neighbor is is determined only by opportunity and need. In 2013, an activist for LGBT causes named Shane Windmeyer wrote a very interesting article for the Huffington Post, and it was called Dan and Me, My Coming Out as a Friend of Dan Cathy and Chick-fil-A. Now, Dan Cathy is the chairman of Chick-fil-A, a fellow Christian, and a strong advocate for traditional marriage. And so while Shane was organizing protests against Chick-fil-A, Dan reached out to him and gave him a call, which actually led to more calls, text messages, in-person meetings. Uh, Eventually, Dan even invited Shane to be his his special guest at the Chick-fil-A Bowl at the end of the college football season. Dan wanted to get to know Shane and to listen to his concerns. Shane wrote in this article that it was awkward at times, but always genuine and kind. Both men knew the other's beliefs. Neither of them changed in their convictions. And yet, they became neighbors. Now, the world says that there ought to be hatred between these two. But the Holy Spirit worked through Dan for God's glory, creating a friendship instead. And in this example, God is showing the world that, yes, in his kingdom, neighborliness to enemies is alive and well. Now, by nature, we are God's enemies. And yet Christ turns us into neighbors 
friends, and family. He did it by paying the price of his life, even while you were still his enemy. He cares for you, naturally his enemy, but now his son or daughter. And as you embrace the covenant of his kingdom from the heart, you will go and do likewise. Let us pray. Father, we were every bit as much your enemy as everybody we are tempted to count as our enemies. Actually more so. For you never did anything to deserve it. So Father, we thank you and praise you that out of your love and goodness, you saved us. You made us your sons and daughters. We didn't deserve this. And so, Father, we can only praise you for your great mercy. Father, we pray that you would make us instruments of your kingdom. We pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us to go and do likewise. We pray that your Holy Spirit would put it in our guts, to feel it in our guts, so that we would have compassion on all those around us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.